Hello, hello, beautiful people. Fa-la-la, Merry Christmas to everyone out there that is celebrating. Happy Friday, Christmas Day. Well, in case you have a few hours of road time or just extra time on your (laughs) hands because you're uh, relaxing and celebrating, I actually am leaving this episode as the full entire length instead of splitting it amongst two shows. So you might have to press pause and come back because I think it's going to be close to two hours. But boy, do I have a present for you. This man has almost like magic energy. When I first was in the same virtual space with him, I was like just drawn to him automatically. And I didn't even realize the why per se. And after spending some time with him, I now know he's just freaking incredible and he's very smart and... I don't know. I'm just I'm just thrilled to share him with you. So without any further ado, Tim Ringold is our guest this week, and I hope you enjoy him as much as I did. Hello, Tim. Welcome to 321 No Kidding. Thank you so much for having me, Bobby. It's great to be here. I'm excited. It's been long awaited, and I've been talking on my daily shows about trying to button you down because you're a wealth of knowledge. Appreciate and- that. As we were talking before, I didn't realize you even had more value than I intended. So I I love it. I'm going to let you kick us off and talk because you you are not a rookie at this. (laughs) Hi, everybody. Tim here. So my name is Tim Ringgold. I'm a board certified music therapist, which means I use music as a treatment tool in clinical settings, just like a physical therapist uses exercise. That's my professional background. But my personal background is that I'm a person in long-term recovery from sex addiction. I failed out of college because of gaming addiction, as well as I was abusing alcohol. But that the gaming thing, uh, I'd love to just share a little bit about at some point today, because it's a very unique thing. And, and those who are hearing my voice right now will appreciate that the way I articulate my journey through behavioral addiction. Today, I am a 48-year-old dad of three kids, one in heaven, two here, a uh, happy husband, got a dog, got another one on the way. I am an insanely new, mad, passionate pickleball player. So I play pickleball and tennis probably five days a week in the mornings early. When the sun comes up, I watch the sun rise from the court, and that keeps me sane in all of this madness that the world presents. So that's 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 me in a nutshell. Wow. I just I just got the rules of pickleball. I haven't played yet, but when I was oh. in Colorado, my uncle helped walk me through. It was just the two of us, so we couldn't really do much, but yep. I, I'm anxious to play. So So much fun. Yeah. So much fun. It's just a sport that anyone can play quickly and it does not require a lot of skill or a lot of talent or a lot of physicality. People can play pickleball recreationally with very little skin in the game in any of those areas and you can be successful playing your first day and you just have fun. And then there are the crazy people like me who then go off and hire a coach and and want to be competing in tournaments and are taking, you know, playing the game at like the most insane level possible. But for the, you know, average person out there, just go out, play, have fun, laugh. You'll laugh a lot playing pickleball. That's one of the things about the game. The points come and go really quickly. The ball moves really quickly. Everybody makes mistakes. 70% of points are unforced errors in pickleball, which means everybody's screwing up most of the time. Yeah, and even at the highest level, 70% of of the points are uh, unforced errors, which is very interesting. So people just miss and they laugh 
and you know you move on so pickleball people pickleball yeah my my uncle laughed at me because i had this stereotype in my head because most of the pickleball people i knew were older okay like, oh yeah he is and, and yep. senior competitions and all this so i'm like it can't be that hard yeah boy was i wrong just with us <laughs> two playing around a little so i have respect but i'm glad to hear that it's it's all in fun there you go the other thing that just totally lit me up i've I haven't had someone that's had experience with gaming, mm. gaming addiction. Mm. I've had porn and, and mm. a spouse of a sex addict. And I, I really do like sharing the behavioral addictions. And I learned a lot. I went to a conference, I guess it's two years ago now, and really heard about the dangers. And ever since then, I've been preaching about the kids and the hidden things that are, because not only is it the gaming piece, it's the it's setting them up to be gamblers at the casino or betting too with the loot boxes and all the things that I don't know much about. So any light that you can shed on that will be amazing. I don't know if you want to start there, but that would be great. Yeah. You know, I'm this, this goes back to, I am a kid who grew up in a hyper-religious house. And so there was like order, there was right and wrong. There was like really strong rules and I was never allowed to have a gaming system. And it wasn't until I, I got off to college and my parents weren't around that my roommates or my neighbors down the hall or in another building, they had games. And I went like full blown crazy, you know, same with sex, same thing, same with alcohol. I mean, I went crazy in college, just, you know, and what was really interesting was that here's how I knew I had a very specific issue with games. I liked the me in the video games better than the me in reality. I could do things in the video games that I could not do in reality. And I began to prefer living as my avatar. That's not based in reality. It's pure fantasy. And, and so I was getting just a massive dopamine hit playing a version of myself that didn't exist. And then I would crash in reality. Because, of course, all the things I was neglecting while I was fantasizing inside of the game. And when I say fantasizing inside of the games, not in any sexual context, these particular games were sports or even role playing. Like I was a, a naval officer in the space like program and I was fighting off enemies in a, in a spaceship. So I was like Han Solo or, or you know, like uh, Luke Skywalker in Red 5 going in. And I, I just, I lost myself inside of that world as an escape from the stress and the pain I was experiencing in this world. So when I was in that world, I was completely disconnected from my thoughts, feelings, emotions in the present, in this world. And so what most people don't understand about addiction is that it's different than use and use is different than abuse. Addiction is when it's no longer about pleasure. The addiction is a successful attempt at a solution to a problem. It's not a problem. It's a solution to a problem. It turns out it's a shitty solution. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I forgot to ask before we went on the air. You're good. Okay. Is this a clean recording or are we allowed to? Nope. Curse? I get explicit just in case because there's oh. days I get on a roll. <laughs> okay. Okay. Fair enough. Thank you. So yeah, the fun bus left you know, long ago, like it starts out with pleasure, you know, anything, anything it's you start out with use and there's a pleasure response to that use. Your brain lights up, dopamine floods your system. And you're just like, Ooh, let's do that again. 
And then you start to abuse whatever that is. And you move into a, a level of use that's not in the bell curve of what most people are doing recreationally. And then you move to a point of dependence where now this has become a coping skill for you. It's become something that you, in order for you to, to function without it, you need it. Otherwise, you're in anhedonia and you're not experiencing any pleasure. You're crabby. You might have, and this can be behavioral or substance. What was that fancy word you said? Anhedonia. Anhedonia is a fancy word for not feeling pleasure. So here's what happens. If you're hearing my voice right now, you can't see me do this on screen. But imagine that the activities of daily living provide a source of pleasure for you, which they do. And let's imagine that there's like a 10-point scale of pleasure of those things. So for example, sunrise. If you're a morning person, sunrise, source of pleasure. Let's call it a five. It's like, no, it's really nice. That's not the greatest part of my day, but it's really nice. It's on my day yesterday. So for example, I get up and I drive. I'm on the way. I drive to the pickleball courts in the dark and the sun rises while I'm on the court. It's great. Yesterday and today were totally distinct sunrises and yet both of them were gorgeous. And I noticed them. So I got a hit and we'll call it a five. The challenge anhedonia is when you get into abuse of a behavior or a substance, you've hijacked your pleasure system in your brain. The behavior you're doing is now triggering massive releases of dopamine, which is the pleasure chemical in your brain. And and it's, it's it starts to hijack the whole reward circuit. And you end up with like 30 as a response to the drug or the behavior. Whereas you might get a five out of a sunrise, you might have a 30 inside that game if you level up. Like it's a completely inordinate reaction or response. Probably similar for gamblers who are, because gambling is usually, you're gaming. It's a game, whatever, you know, you're engaged in, right? And there's a hit that you get with that intermittent reinforcement, right? You're putting something on the line, the risk factor, people, uh, triggers adrenaline, you win, triggers dopamine. But once the system, you kind of break the system and it starts to release massive amounts that typical things like the sunrise can't even compete with as far as numerically in the brain, quantitatively. And so the system then just becomes calibrated for these massive hits. Of dopamine. What happens to people when they try to stop the behavior that's giving this massive, let's say 30 dose, they don't notice the sun because their system is now calibrated to like 30. So five doesn't even register. 10 doesn't even register. So there's a period of time where people don't experience any joy or any pleasure. They're just flat. And it's, it's weird because they're numb, but they're sober and they're numb. And they're like, WTF, like I was comfortably numb before. Now I'm uncomfortably numb. Nothing feels good. And this sucks. So I need a hit. And then my brain, because of neuroplasticity and neuroassociation, my brain reminds me what actually works for me at this stage of my brain's development. And it just goes back to whatever the behavior was, like the number one answer on Family Feud. Like, what's the number one thing that releases dopamine in this brain? Porn! Sweet. Suddenly you're thinking about porn. What's the number one answer? 
Gambling. Sweet. You suddenly think about the game you gamble on, whatever it is. What's the number one thing? Tetris. <laughs> Great. Okay. Tetris. Candy Crush Saga. Great. For me, Wing Commander 2 Revenge of the Kill Wraithy got me on academic probation and Sega Genesis Golf got me flunked out because I could play. I was I played golf in real life, but not like I did in Sega. I could manip, I could play every shot that any professional golfer could play in the game and I would win money in the game. Not that I could spend it, but I was a millionaire as a successful PGA Tour touring professional in the game, playing the level of golf on the golf courses I've always wanted to play, playing the types of shots that I've always wanted to play, playing with the people I've always wanted to play, making the money I've always wanted to make, none of it in reality, all of it triggering massive amounts of dopamine released in my brain. So then I, I just keep doing that because you know the brain just keeps seeking pleasure. And that was college until it was over. And then I realized I can't play video games. And so I tried, you know, throughout my 20s to re-engage with video games. And then I'd have to uninstall them a few days later after I hadn't done anything but play that video game and not eat or sleep. This is my kryptonite. This is one of my kryptonites. I like, I am powerless in the presence of these dumb games. They're too good for me. They do too much uh, to my brain. I cannot cope with playing them. They wreck, you know, they wreck the rest of my life. Too bad for me. Uh, a lot of people can play video games and it doesn't do that to them. They are absolutely kryptonite. And I always use the word kryptonite, Bobby, because I have found, I worked in treatment centers with adolescents, young adults, and adults who are in recovery for our substance abuse or behavioral addiction. It's always the same. It's I'll have a group of 12 people in the room and I'll have five or six different addictions, primary. And they're all struggling with the same core issues. They're all struggling to be able to accept life on life's terms and, and operate inside of a state of being connected to something outside of their self that they find safe on a daily basis as a guiding compass. And it doesn't really matter if they were hooked on heroin or opioids or alcohol or weed or work or gambling or sex. You know, it was like same, same issues, just different coping skills that they had learned. They just reached for different things. And, and the thing I want your, your audience to understand about your brain is that the stressed brain craves by design. It's part of what we would call a self-soothing uh, response. So think back to children, infants, when they're upset, they self-soothe. And they self-soothe by either sucking their thumb or uh, tactile holding onto some sort of blankie or rocking, what they're trying to do is regulate their nervous system. They're trying to reset that stress response from being cold or tired or hungry or wet or whatever the case may be. Human beings, that's the nervous system. That's human beings all through life. We just reach out into the external environment for self-regulating, self-soothing tools, and some work and some don't. And we just do that our whole life because our nervous system for our whole life goes from being in a relaxed, creative, connected state to an activated stress response state. And when that changes gears, we move into reactivity and protection mode. All kinds of physiological things happen in the brain and the adrenals to change the biochemistry of our body during that stress response, none of which is meant to be chronic. The stress response was only for outrunning a tiger 
or fighting off a tribe. Those activities were rare, developed like evolutionarily. So the way our nervous system works is once it gets tripped and that physiological change takes place, it takes the body a while to actually metabolize those chemicals it releases because they're not really designed to be flooding through our blood on a regular basis. And so, well, now it's daily for us. We get stressed in modern life on a daily basis. Our nervous system's not designed to be able to tolerate that. So we are literally overwhelmed by modern life. The human brain is overwhelmed by modern life. And so it spends all day trying to reset. And every time that it gets activated and stressed, it triggers a craving to whatever the tool or behavior worked best, most. It doesn't matter whether it's legal, moral, healthy, socially acceptable, all of those are irrelevant as far as the brain that's issuing this response is concerned. Doesn't care about future consequence, just wants to know what will relax that nervous system right now, what, what works best. And so it just goes to the memory bank. That's why relapse is the leading indicator, or stress is the leading indicator of relapse for people in recovery, because they're just, their nervous system is reaching for what it's used to reaching for. One of our, the director of our gambling program always talks about gambling being on a cellular level. And I don't think mm. I've ever heard it explained. Like I can see the connections in what you just said when you talked about the nervous system being programmed. You just said it very eloquently where I could actually wrap my head around it. Awesome. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Wow. So I wrote down a question. I'm going to go backwards a little if that's no, okay. Fine. Yeah. I, I'm like fascinated listening to you speak. I feel kind of like you're a celebrity. I'm sorry. That's how I react to you because you're like, your presence is just freaking amazing, Tim. And, and I just love everything about you. So, and That's you're so humble too, which is amazing. So you, my, my question was, you had, you talked about the house with religion and, and then going to college, like was the gaming, I had two questions. One was kind of like obnoxious because like, how could you be addicted to gaming and sex at the same time? Like if you're not leaving the video machine, how are you having this social? <laughs> being silly. That's but funny. Was it just circumstance, just being in college and just the introduction of the gaming that started it? Because I'm starting to feel in my recovery and, and from watching people that there's generally an underlying issue. Yeah. Of some Always. Yeah, let's be clear. Most people recreationally use the behaviors and substances that people are in recovery from and use them for a 10-year period and spontaneously quit. Hmm. Most people. That is an overwhelming bell curve in the research. People will use recreational substances and behaviors for about a 10-year period, and then they just tire of it. And they, they naturally, without even consciously thinking about it, they just wean themselves. They just walk away. They just, the attrition occurs naturally. That's a stat nobody talks about. Because here's the, the fundamental truth you have to crash into. Let's just look at alcohol for a second. If alcohol was the reason alcoholics are alcoholics, everyone who drinks alcohol would become an alcoholic. Wow, yes. Except we know that the great majority of people who drink alcohol do not become alcoholics. So then therein lies a question, which is 
okay, if it's not the alcohol, what is it in the alcoholic that has them become alcoholic and not someone else? And the easy answer people like to point to is genes. I got the gene. We know that that's not the answer. But for a while, it was a very sexy answer because it sounded smart and simple at the same time. And rarely, rarely is that the case, particularly when it comes to genes. Gen genes are phenomenally complicated and way beyond the, the uh, scope of my even understanding to talk intelligently about. But what I can tell you is that it's, it's not that simple. So then you ask yourself, how did all of the veterans who came home from Vietnam that the VA was planning for an, like an epidemic of heroin use, their, their concerns about withdrawals. There was a massive concern in the military at the end of the Vietnam War because of the number of soldiers that seemingly had become hooked on heroin while serving. And they came home and overwhelmingly, the overwhelming majority stopped using. Are you going to talk about why the study? Yeah, what was interesting was that they were no longer in the face of trauma in the United States coming back here that they were when they were in the jungles. They were experiencing physical trauma, psychological trauma, moral trauma while they were in the jungle. You took that stimulus with that, that pain away from them and they were no longer medicating that was the connection. There was an underlying stimulus of pain that was external. And then for those who struggled with PTSD, it became internal and they, they did need treatment. So the real question is, well, what does an addiction do? It solves a problem. What's the problem? The problem is some sort of pain, which is a stressor on the nervous system. It's either a physical pain, it's an emotional pain, it's a social pain, or it's a spiritual pain, or it's combination. And so you end up having a cluster of symptoms that are driving, or not symptoms, but causes that are driving this self-soothing behavior. For me, in college, I noticed that, so things were happening. I had several really painful things happening. My parents, my mom was really sick. My parents were kind of breaking up. I had a career-ending knee injury. I was a rugby player who had played internationally and was going to go play professionally in Europe, had teams in Australia and in France lined up to go try out for, and then had a knee injury. My girlfriend graduated, my band broke up, but we couldn't afford the tuition for school. So I got there and like all this embarrassing stuff happened. My drinking and gaming went through the roof. Why? Because my real world, IRL, in real life, my world was falling apart. So I crawled inside of video games to hide from reality. And it worked. It's, I mean, they're so stimulating. They're so well-designed. And this is 1994. I mean, that's nothing compared to, I mean, those are, you know, that was just the pony leagues compared to what, how well games are designed to capture and keep your attention and hook you for longer and longer periods of time with no end. I mean, there are games that are literally designed with no end. It's from a completely amoral perspective, game design is brilliant and genius in so many ways if you didn't have any morals. And if you did, you're like, oh, yeah, do you ever have a conflict of interest with when you made this thing? 
this crack cocaine that you're brewing called a video game. Didn't you think that this might be a problem for some people? No? Okay, cool, man. I'm going to sidetrack for a minute because you just reminded me. I, I don't even remember who I was talking to about it, but with gambling, the slot machines, the way that they're set up, there's songs that trigger me. It's the same brilliance. There's different things, whether it's current events or movies, like there's Wizard of Oz slot machines. So you're right. There's this whole psychology that uh, us people who aren't in tune to it don't even realize it's happening. No. And, you know, it's, you know, when you are the, when you're the product, you're, you know what I mean? Like you're, so these games are, are the smartest young people in the United States and abroad come here and you know, they get concentrated into like two areas, wealth management in New York City and tech in Silicon Valley. So the very smartest minds in the world spend 40, 60, 80 hours a week in groups trying to think how to hijack your nervous system, your the, not your nervous system, the, the, the pleasure system in your brain, the reward system. And they're really good at it. Food manufacturers are really good at it. You, you know, the trifecta with the salt, sugar, and fat in the way that they've designed food to initiate cravings. There's no hope. You have no chance. It's all designed because you, we use the word that we're the consumer. We're the consumed. Just the most brilliant sleight of hand. If you look at the way our economy is designed today, at the end of 2020, humans, they are the product. They don't buy the product. They think they buy the product, but they're really the product. And it's genius, again, from a completely amoral perspective. But for the average person, then what they do, especially in the United States, where self-determinism and the individual is so sanctified, that's a cultural construct, by the way. That's not the design of mammal. You have a problem. The individual has a problem. The system has no problem. Systemic blank doesn't it's not doesn't exist anybody can work themselves out of any situation so it must be a hundred percent the individual that is the classic you know thing so you'll see you'll go to vegas i was in vegas for a conference maybe last year it's not good because everything there is designed to get me to be the product every visual every sound every smell every taste, all of it, everything there. And you'll see you're, you're just, you're not set up to win. And then it'll say, gamble responsibly, drink responsibly. <laughs> right. And you're like, and, and you're feeding me free drinks while I'm gambling because it's a neurotoxin that knocks out the moral compass I have that says, maybe this is a bad idea. I should leave. I'm a hundred thousand in the hole. I mean, if anybody just wakes up for a second and, and wonders why you get fed free alcohol to gamble, it's not so you'll win, right? So this whole system, the whole game is rigged against you. And so you have to be eyes open and say, that's the system we live in. For right or wrong, that's, that's the system we live in. It's designed to capture and keep my attention. And I am going to lose that battle because they're just better at it. So what are my options? Well, one of my options is to spend drastically less time in front of screens. And I mean, you know, to your best of your ability, of course. And then when you're going to use the screen, are you using the screen or is the screen using you? Asking yourself that question, right? Like, what am I using the screen for right now? Being really mindful because otherwise you're going to get used. 
whether it's your Facebook wall or it's YouTube or it's Netflix. I mean, the skip intro button is the greatest invention of all time because you're totally lobotomized. And by the way, have you noticed that Netflix doesn't produce movies anymore? They produce series, right? Like everything is now Netflix original series. Instead of like a two-hour movie, it's like 10 hours over five episodes or 10 episodes. Like they have just devised ways to capture and keep your attention for longer and longer periods of time. Because once you get hooked on a series, you don't have to make a decision, a buying decision on the rest of the series. But if you only watch two hours of a movie, now you have to make a buying decision on whether you're going to watch another movie. But a series, you're already in. And when the skip intro button, you're like lobotomized. You're just like, you, you don't have time. Suddenly you're, you haven't taken a pee in three hours and you're, you don't even notice. And then you turn off the screen and then your body finally informs you of how it feels. It's either hungry, it's tired, it has to go to the bathroom. It's happened. I watch, I watch this happen to my kids all the time with screens. We, we have this relationship in our house with screens where we're trying to teach the kids how hot the fire is by letting them burn their hands, but not burn their body. So we're giving them access to screens. I have a nine and a 14 year old. We give them screen time. We, we let them like blow their screen time. So they go way over because, you know, without being enforced, it's really hard for them to stop. And then we have them notice, like, how do you, how does your body feel right now? Uh, look at, go look in the mirror. Look at your eyes. Just go look at your eyes right now. What do you see? They're bloodshot. How's your mood? How do you feel right now? What's your outlook? And then this is like checking in with my nine-year-old so he can have his own experience of, you know, the game reaction. It's like a drug reaction. He looks high. Yeah. Because he's been on whatever game device he has without blinking for far too long. And the way our culture is, is it's like, oh, that's your fault. You need help. There's something wrong with you. And what I want people to know is there's actually nothing wrong with you. It's just that the weak link in your stress response is whatever that thing is. So everybody has a weak link. Everybody reaches for something when they get stressed. So what you have to identify is you have to look at what do you reach for when you get stressed? What are those behaviors? What are those substances? And check in and go, are those, I don't know in the moment whether they're good for me, but when I'm not stressed, if I can do a stress assessment and go, are these good for me? And if I'm, if I'm honest, you know, my gut will give me a quick, honest answer. That's how I ended up not drinking was because, you know, I did the test with the counselors at the gambling place, right? They don't use the word alcoholic anymore anyway. Right. Yeah. But whatever one of those levels, I wasn't the worst, but I was problem drinker or whatever. So the I, I started working on it to at least be mindful of mm -hmm. it. Like I was not willing to give it up. Yeah. I'm like, no, I, I want to drink. <laughs> I quit gambling. Don't make me quit drinking too. <laughs> so, but what ended up happening was I started paying attention to whether or not I was drinking because it was a coping mechanism, because I was in a social situation, like really identifying why I was drinking. Nice. And then I went on a trip last year and it was a sober trip. It was my first time and I knew I needed to go. And the, the guy running it said, you know, he'd like us to not drink for 30 days leading up. So I didn't drink. I saw what a good time it was. And then I come home and the shit hits the fan, you know, worst and best year of my life. But I couldn't figure out why I should pick up a drink 
that wouldn't have made it a coping mechanism because of all the stress and all the shit. Mm. And I didn't like my behavior last year at one incident where I was like mean. I wasn't who I want to be. Mm. I was scared of doing that because some of the pain hadn't healed. So mm. I haven't drank since prepping for this trip because I haven't found a good reason to drink. And I keep telling my audience, I don't know if I'm going to drink again someday. Just right now, I don't need to drink. Like I can have a fancy margarita that has no booze in it if my yes, you can. are having things, you know, like, so it's that mindfulness. I love what you said, Tim. And I've been, I'm not a parent, but lately this, this communication about how to parent with, with kindness, um, mm. you know, at the, at the Paths to Power last weekend, somebody was talking about not yelling at your kids. So I really like what you, what you said. And I think there is a kinder way and if people are doing a better job parenting their kids, and now I'm not the therapist here, but I'm thinking that it's setting them up to help them learn different strategies so that they don't end up in the attic boat looking for dopamine. That's what yeah. I'm hearing or insinuating out of this. So if I think about addiction and like what are the root causes, like what's at the heart of it? If we want to just dive all the way down to like what's really going on for a human being, I come to the conclusion, and this is just me that I have kind of like a, a duality of where there is the me that's the one one millionth fraction of the whole of the universe of God energy of whatever noun you want to use like I'm carbon I'm oxygen I'm, I'm atoms I'm, I'm made up of stuff and all of that stuff is all the same stuff in the known universe so the physical universe is all made up of the same stuff so we're all literally connected. We're all the same thing. We just form into unique individuations of the same thing. So the individuation known as Tim Ringgold, and I use the word individuation, I heard that first from Neil Donald Walsh in his Conversation with God books, which I read back in the 90s, which were really fascinating take on spirituality, and I really resonated with it. And if I'm a tiny individuation of the whole thing, there's a part of me that's genuinely still we. I'm still connected. My ingredients are a hundred percent made up of the same ingredients that everything is made up of. So Bobby, I think of myself as a we consciousness. I have this connection. Part of me is the we, the whole. We're hundred percent God. I'm, I'm not made up of anything that isn't the ingredients of God. I'm not a God as a noun. It's just the ingredients. I am a tiny fraction. I'm a cell within the body. So if you opened up my body down to the level of cells, those cells wouldn't identify themselves with the personality Tim Ringgold, but are they no less 100% Tim Ringgold? Right. Right? Yeah. So the cells in my body, as an individual cell, has its own form, its own shape, its own purpose. It's an individuation of the whole. I think about me in the meat suit that I'm in right now, my human body. I think of myself as a cell within the whole. So I'm eternally and completely surrounded by me, in connection with me, connected to me, to the whole thing, like a cell would be. Cells aren't floating around in my body thinking they're not part of the whole. Oh, I'm feeling really lonely. I'm the only one out there. You know, unless they are, they don't, do they know we're having this conversation, right? Like <laughs> levels of reality. 
But really, thought experiments like this are really useful because if you stop and you consider a cell and you think, that's part of me. Okay, cool. And then you think it's also its own thing and it has its own life cycle and it can be killed and it can be, it can turn, right? So there's like all kinds of things that a little individual cell goes through. And so I'm this little individual cell, part of the big we. And then there's very much a part of it that's me, this experience of being an individual. Like I'm having the experience of being an individual in an individual body, having a conversation with you right now. It's very real for me. I've been given a name. I didn't pick the name, but I go around with this name. It's like a label, Tim Ringgold. That's my stamp. Oh, cool. This body goes by the name Tim Ringgold, even though this body is part of the whole. My experience around people with addiction is that something broke the connection to the whole. And the catalyst, the cause, the perpetrator, the villain goes is many different things for different people. Something broke in their experience of being connected to the whole. And people may or may not even be able to articulate that until some point in the recovery journey. And, but they know it happened because I know this because I share a song that I wrote in groups and have for, you know, a decade now. And the first lines say, there was a time when everything seemed right with the world. And inside of me, I thought I could accomplish anything. But then something broke, suddenly felt alone. I lost myself trying to escape from the pain, from the things I can't explain. And I, I sing this song to groups and I give them the lyrics and I say, just circle or underline any words or any phrases that, you know, you connect with. And over and over and over and over, every single time I lead the group, but then something broke, gets circled. And we just start to talk. Do you remember how old you were? Do you remember what it was? That break in connection, the disconnection, I believe causes discomfort within the self, the me. The me, the ego feels suddenly cut off from the source. Mammals, we are pack animals, which means we are wired to live in connection with each other, in relationship, in community, from cradle to grave. The human being is designed to live in groups. So from a spiritual perspective, from a social perspective, from a physical perspective, if you disconnect the human being, it causes discomfort. They always say the opposite of addiction is connection. Mm -hmm. And again, you just shed a whole different perspective. I, I love this because some of what you're talking about is new to me and some of it isn't. Even if it isn't, it's being presented in a way. And I keep thinking about how some people learn visually and some people learn auditory. And you're presenting this in, in a way that I can really appreciate and digest. And I, mm. I agree with you. I didn't, I didn't know until you got kind of to the punchline. But what's different in my journey is I had two years clean of no gambling. Mm. And then I went back out. Mm -hmm. And then now I'm coming up next year, it'll be four years. And I've pinpointed the difference on how I feel and how I am fairly confident. I, I don't ever need, need to gamble again. Mm -hmm. And the difference is spirituality for me that I never had it, never was interested in it, still have a hard time saying the G word, you know, and, and it, 
it's life changing. It's pivotal to, to get that connection. And it was, you know, I'll give credit to the 12 steps because I'm a like by the book kind of girl. So mm-hmm. when I got to step 11, it was like, okay, well, I got to practice meditating. I got to go to church. I got to figure this shit out. And it actually worked, you know, like, because I went in with an open mind. So yep. I'm really picking up what you're putting down. So thank That's you. That's great. Totally great. I try to tell guys when I'm working in, and gals, when I'm in a treatment center, I have to be careful and I have to tread lightly around spirituality. Sadly, I don't offer the conversation but the conversation comes up and what I say is that this is how I put it. It seems like it's a game changer. Love that. And that is the safest, most inclusive way I can describe whether the relevance or the like, is it a good idea to, you know, engage in a spiritual practice as a part of my recovery? Well, it seems like it's a game changer. And if we unpack that, I'm saying it observationally. Jim Rohn was the first person I heard uh, use this. He, he said, one of the things that I, I like to do on stage is I'll start truisms with something like, seems like, and then that just like offers up this kind of humility that this is coming as an observation. But for me, it's the truth, but I'm not going to say it's the truth because then people are going to go, oh, who are you to say the truth? So it's like a comedian. You're just observing, right? So it seems like, and then it's a game changer. And what I really mean by that is for those, it's like black and white to color, two-dimensional to three-dimensional. It's like high-speed internet to dial up or dial up to high-speed. When you have a spiritual practice in your life, what it provides you completely changes the occurrence of life because life is suddenly framed in a completely new way. And because spirituality, spiritual, true spirituality is an opt-in experience. So you opt in to spirituality. So therefore, whose spirituality are you opt in, opting into? Well, it's irrelevant because you're opting in, which means you're voluntarily saying, I'm going to look through the world through this lens and see what happens. The world gets better when you change. The world changes. Yeah, and the whole game changes when you look through a different lens. I keep using the term invincible. Mm. What spirituality did to me was, it made it so I can reframe every obstacle, challenge, negative, every everything from my whole journey to the point that I had this revelation as serving a purpose and creating me to be who I am today. So if that's the case, then any new obstacle challenge negative thing has a purpose and i understand that so there's never how can you go wrong can't lose and it's the it has been the most critical piece and i'm sorry i'm getting all excited because that was that was a big aha for me this year and it's That's outstanding it's it's a game changer as soon as you it's like when neo suddenly starts to see the matrix code and and like everything is decoded. I'm sorry for using movie references because that's like a 20-year-old movie at this point. But the moment you get it, it suddenly opens up a world to you, a world of possibility that just wasn't available beforehand. And the beauty of it is you get it's, it's on your terms. It's because it's not religion. See, religion was someone else's terms. Spirituality are your terms. It's your practice. You ultimately decide to participate in spirituality. You, you consciously go, I'm in. 
what and then whatever it looks like it looks like but it, it's it's personal and it's subjective so what works for me is the only thing that's relevant in a spiritual practice and so i'm going to give you my two i'm going to give you three like quick little downloads on spirituality really quickly since we're talking about it because i think a lot about this one my test for whether a spiritual practice is going to be good for me or not i have a test it's a three-pronged test and it goes like this one will it give me the courage to get out of bed and face the world two will it inspire me to be the best version of myself while i'm out of my bed out in the world three will it comfort my little monkey brain enough when i get back into bed to calm down enough to fall asleep wow now just think about those three things people with depression don't get out of bed they can't face the outside world they're trapped in their bed they're isolating in their bed they're withdrawing in their bed number two being your best self there is an infinite number of decisions i can make throughout the day that are either really cool or really douchey or somewhere in between right and so having a framework that really calls me like a vacuum it just pulls it out of me calls me to be the best version of me that's in here there's that's a because there's a, I, there's a thousand decision points a day and every time i can keep going up i can go down i can go up so having this thing running during the day in the background so i'm always choosing up 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 without it feeling like effort game changer and then people with sleep issues it's not because their body doesn't know how to fall asleep it's because their mind doesn't so you have to calm the monkey mind down enough for it to fall asleep and how i know this to be true is in my clinical practice i put people to sleep so i do this what's called a relaxation vacation and it's a guitar driven meditation script that i take people through and invariably they fall asleep while we're doing it great super job done and they're like uh, i don't understand i was like see you don't that exactly you won't fall asleep if you're not relaxed your nervous system won't let you so people with sleep issues it's usually because their nervous system is still activated and they literally they can't shut it off so that their body will take over and power down so what's going on it's usually anxiety and it's usually worries of control trying to control the future trying to control outcomes anticipating being afraid of not being able to control because literally think about this for a second bobby in order to sleep you have to let go of consciousness mm-hmm. and go i'm going to let my body lie right here for eight to hours and not get eaten i need to feel safe and if you don't feel safe psychologically you're in a stress response and if you're in a stress response you're not sleeping so we turn off that stress response the body can take over and fall asleep we can only do that when we are willing to let go cue music music initiates the stress res- the relaxation response so it actually turns off the stress response for us and anyone who's ever had a song come on when you were in mood A and by the time the song was over you were in mood B you know this to be true for yourself you've already experienced it so that's music working on the nervous system shifting your state shifting your mood turning off right so you're you're upset song comes on you're transformed you're suddenly in a different state 
I did that on purpose on Saturday. I was pissed about something and I had to show up in front of people and I literally put on my favorite little blue October song, I Hope You're Happy, and I danced and sung it out and was like, I am going to show up and I am going to be happy about it. That's awesome. Yeah. That's so great. And that's it. That's what we, you know, that's what we, we use music. We prescribe ourselves music all the time. And so going back to the spirituality piece, having something that you believe in that allows you to accomplish those three things, for me, that's like game, set, match. Gives me the courage to get out of bed, gives, inspires me to be my best self, and calms me enough to be able to fall asleep. I, let me tell you, I have no problems falling asleep at night. I sleep great. I, I, my head is, my wife will tell you, I'm asleep before my head hits the pillow. I'm complete. In the world of, I'm going to go a little business for a second, because okay. I'm finding... So we established I've had spirituality, right? But then on my business journey, I feel like my mind is always racing mm. of the next thing. And I'm conscious sure. of the fact that when I lay down, if I'm worrying and thinking about it, I can't do anything. I've laid down. I made the decision that I'm not going to worry and do it, but I still struggle to shut my brain off. Do you have yep. any feedback on that? Yeah, I think ultimately being letting go that there's in this moment, there is anything to be done other than me taking care of myself. Is there really anything to be done? Like, oh shit, no, I, 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 my podcast is supposed to come out Monday morning and I didn't schedule it. Okay, get out of bed, schedule the podcast. There's something to be done. If there's, oh, I just gotta get this one more thing. Oh, I just gotta get this one more thing where there's no real finish line in sight. There's really nothing to be done. And it, I think it comes from a place, for me, I can only speak for myself, it comes from a place where I wanna be somewhere I'm not. I want to be further along than I am for me. That's when sleep doesn't work. I am uncomfortable with the way it is. There's something about the way it is right now that's occurring like a problem. It's occurring like there's something wrong. And it's usually around, I wish I was further along than I am. Whether it's a project, whether it's income, you know, whether it's an event, when I'm losing sleep, if I look at all the times that's happened in my life and I think back like, okay, well, what's the common denominator? It's that I'm, I'm uncomfortable. It is the little me, the ego is uncomfortable in that moment with the way things aren't. This shouldn't be. I should be further along. I should I should have gotten this done. This person shouldn't have got this, but the, the, either they should have or shouldn't have, or I should have or shouldn't have. What? So what are you noticing? It's impatience. And you like just quoted about a hundred things that have fallen out of my mouth the last few weeks. And, and, and I'm doing it to myself. And I've been trying to figure out how to get out of the cycle. And sometimes just hearing the mirror back. I know mm. you're talking about it in context for yourself. But it is, it's impatient, which then to tie it back to your spirituality is I'm not having the faith I'm claiming to have in my practices. Girl, I want to tell you, like faith is the most pragmatic tool out there. And most people, it's like, you understand your faith, like if, if you're in a state of dis-ease, discontent, worry, concern, you want to check about you want to check in with your like your faith muscles. They need a workout because that's the that's their purpose is for you to turn it over and say, hold this, I'm gonna take a nap. Inside of that faith belief, 
that thing that you turn it over to safely stewards it for you while you nap. And then it's waiting for you when you wake up. You can grab that concern. You're free to grab it. When my daughter was in the hospital, I made a pledge to myself I would not walk in the hospital with fear because it's contagious. And my daughter is looking to me. There's 65 strangers come into her room every 24 hours. The only person she knows is me. I'm not bringing fear into her room. P.S. She's an infant and she's on an intubator. So she's in a coma. I'm still not bringing fear into the room. Every morning, I would go to a park bench and I would say to God, because I would use the word God, that was the noun I used at the time. And I would say, here's my fear, you hold it. I'll pick it up on the way home. And I reserve the right to take control and try as the little me, I'm going to somehow take control over the universe, you know, me, er, and I'm going to try to control the outcome inevitably, because I'm living inside of a me experience just as much as a we experience. So there's this duality and they fight, you know, and it's, it's cool. It's all good. And I would go through this conscious practice of saying, here's my fear, hold it for me. I'll pick it up on the way back. And that was so simple, but the stakes were so high. And sometimes I find that life can be easier when the stakes are high. Uh, because it just gets, for me, it just gets much clearer, much quicker what I need to do in order to survive. And I remember hearing Russell Brand describe quite, because he's a brilliantly articulate human as well. Somewhat I, I, you know, aspire to be as articulate as Russell Brand. Even all those F-bombs. Oh, yeah, I'll take it all day. <laughs> so he describes himself that he's very lucky he, that he discovered heroin. Because heroin was such a high stakes drug that he had to get help quickly or he'd die. There was no long, slow descent into the grave with heroin because this, it's just the, the intensity, the, the stakes are so high. And so he had to pay attention if he wanted to live. And he was grateful for that, that it was something that where the universe had turned the volume up so loud that he couldn't miss it. This is going to kill you. The real challenge in life is when the volume is at one and two, it's tolerable. We tolerate all kinds of things, behavior that we do to ourselves, beliefs, relationships. We tolerate them, right? Because they're a one, a two, a three. Bah. You know, if every, everything else is working, so if this was still here, yeah, I'll be fine, right? And that just wears on us slowly. But then when we get into really high stakes situations, I mean, that's why I think you hear stories of heroes where they were in like a really high intense situation and the stakes were really big and they they did the right thing in the moment. And they were like, well, uh, you know, I just did what there was to do in the moment to survive. It really was very clear, very obvious. And oh, I could never have done that if I were you. Well, yeah, you probably would have. And I would have said the same thing, you know, theoretically, conceptually, right? But where the rubber hits the road is that spirituality is practical, pragmatic, solves a problem. It allows you to see the world through a different lens so that different options become available or seemingly come into view that previously were invisible to you. That's fun. Like that's a game worth playing. That's real, you know, and that's why the game of life is the most brilliantly designed game ever. Because even here for me at my current youthful age, like it's halftime for me. I'm 48, I'm going another 48. That's the game I'm playing, like easily, going to 96. Nobody's stopping me. Get out of my way. But at 48, new realizations and new challenges show up on a daily basis. And I've been in the game 
for 48 years breathing. And I've been in the game consciously, like knowing I was someone inside of this body easily since I was eight. I really knew that I was having a spiritual experience inside of a human body when I was eight years old. And so I've been at the game a while and it's still new and different and challenging and wonderful daily. And it blows my mind. It, the game blows my mind. The things I reach for that keep me, keep the game occurring that way is a daily spiritual practice. Spiritual practice is like hygiene. If you're not practicing it daily, you stink. <laughs> That's another good nugget there. I mean, it just uh, it seems like daily spiritual practice is the proper interval if you don't want to stink. Yeah. That's what it seems like because this monkey mind of mine is not equipped to operate in the 21st century. The amount of decision fatigue that every human adult brain experiences in the 21st century, it's off the charts. There's this great coach named Dan Sullivan who runs a company called Strategic Coach. And he made this quote easily 10 years ago, and I haven't forgotten it. He said, the human brain in the 21st century is making more decisions in a single day than a brain in London, England, the center of like civilized world in the late 1800s. If you compared someone living in London, which was like the New York City you know, of the world in the late 1800s, the human brain today makes more decisions in a day than that brain made in a year. Wow. And we wonder why we're overwhelmed. We're overwhelmed because of decision fatigue. This little prefrontal cortex in the front of our brain, it's being activated and it's on overdrive. And for many of us, it's shut down because it is simply overwhelmed. You know the old joke, how to boil a frog? No. Slowly. <laughs> slowly. Because its nervous system is primitive enough that if you put it in cool water and then you slowly heat up the temperature, it won't sense the difference and that's how you cook a frog. It literally doesn't know. That's, that's what human beings have done to themselves with technology. We've just advanced, technology's advanced faster than our ability to, to grow with it. And you know, we are over, we are now overwhelmed and we have been for several years. So prior to COVID-19, just so for, here's the wake up call, the United States life expectancy dropped for the three years prior. Prior to the pandemic, the United States life expectancy had already started to drop for the first time since the Spanish flu. Wow. Because of suicides and overdoses. Because the United States has a mental health problem it's overwhelmed. Our brains are overwhelmed and we don't know how to cope with modern technology and modern life. And so we're literally like falling apart physically, emotionally, you know, just, just look around. I mean, the number of people who are obese in the United States, that's not a, not a judgment call on anybody. That's an observation. That's like data. Like there's something wrong, right? The amount of heart disease we have in the United States, the amount of cancer we have in the United States, the amount of addiction, overdose, suicide in the United States, all just off the charts. And it's because the human brain isn't designed for what we're doing. So what we have to do to stay healthy is on a daily basis, we have to keep this machine as clean as possible. So this, this meat suit, this human body is one tire of the vehicle, physical, the mind inside psychological, that's a second tire. The, our relationships with the world around us is our social, that's 
the third tire in our spiritual practice, our connection to something outside of ourself. That's the fourth tire. All four tires need air daily. If you keep those four tires full of air and you repair any holes along the way that happened in the past, you really do have a shot of keeping this body-mind experience, this me-we combination. You have a shot at keeping it really productive and useful and satisfied for long, long, amazing journey on this planet. And that's where COVID kind of took away or had to change the scope of how to do that. Like when you talk about the physical or the psychological or the relations, like all that stuff shifted. So if people didn't shift with it, that's where the mental stuff is getting worse. Yeah. And I mean, it was already bad before COVID, right? So we were already feeling disconnected in our modern world because that's what the screens do because they use us as a product. And we don't have this feeling of connection anymore. And so we were already experiencing that beforehand. And then COVID comes along and then just turns up the temperature, you know, another hundred degrees as a stressor. And so now we're just breaking down relapse. Washington Post published an article that relapse in the United States increased by 30% since March. Personally, I don't know how they get that kind of data and how it would be accurate, but the Washington Post is pretty reputable, you know, newspaper as they come. They're in the top five, you know, so it was a very interesting stat to hear about. But it's not surprising because as in, as stress goes up, you know, cravings will go up. And as cravings go up, the brain's not designed to withstand cravings. It's designed to do the thing. It's the design. Do the thing. So none of it's at all surprising. So the game becomes, okay, right now, if you live in the United States, in going into the 20, 2021, there is a current, a cultural current of stress. So what are you doing for your body? your mind, your relationships, and your spirit on a daily basis so that you can withstand the current. And that's what that's the game. And so the degree to which you keep those tires full of air is the degree to which you become resilient to that current. I haven't gotten sick. Like, I don't remember the last time I got sick. I don't get sick. My immune system, because I, I have this idea, like my immune system is like one of the most important things in my life. And I knew that because my daughter had a bone marrow transplant where they knock out your immune system. And then you're, you know, you, you can't live two days without an immune system. So like, how do you take care of your immune system? So how do you stay healthy? Hmm, okay, that's a game worth playing. Okay, I got to keep my body in a, in a stress-free state. I got to keep my mind in a stress-free state. I got to keep my relationships in a stress-free state. I got to keep my spirituality in a stress-free state because stress decreases the immune system. It wears it out. So I've got to be really careful about stress because not only is it a threat to my sobriety, it's a threat to my immune system. So then stress becomes something that I'm really interested in because like I said, I want to go another 48 years. So I'm like, okay, where does the stress come from? And what am I going to reach for when it strikes? What are my go-to tools that I can reach for that I know are good for me and I know can help? So I build my day around two things. One, a daily spiritual practice, which includes mind, body, relationship, spirit, so that those are all kept every single day, those are fed. And then two, despite that, when stress strikes and I'm knocked off the road and I'm off-roading, what do I do in those moments to be able to you know, reach back and get myself back on, on the road? And if I keep track of those two things, things go well. Do you mind giving us a couple examples of how 
like maybe what spiritual practice looks like or what yeah. of those things are that Happy you to. fill the tires? Yeah, totally. Um, this was a, a really fun conversation I had on a podcast where a, a gal asked me, the what's my definition of spirituality? I think it's a great question. I once had to do a talk on music and spirituality, and you know, a good talk always starts at the heart of the matter, which is what is the definitions of these terms that we're really looking at? Let's make sure we're all on the same page. So as I explored definitions of music and spirituality, I was left with two definitions, um, definition for music. Music is organized sound. That's the empirical definition of music for me. If I try to define it anymore, I encounter argument. So we'll leave it there. Okay, cool. Now let's look at spirituality. Let's read about spirituality, come up with you know a definition. So my definition for spirituality is a conscious action that connects me to something outside of myself. Okay. And then she asked me, well, cool. Well, what's your spiritual practice in your day? Now, prior to that conversation, I might have thought like step 11. I would have thought, oh, I'm only, only being spiritual when I'm meditating or when I'm praying. That's my spiritual practice. But when I looked at the definition, which was any conscious action that connects me to something outside of myself, I began to look at my day. Now, the first thing I do in the morning is, well, there's a lot of things I do, but one of the things I do in the morning is I go outside before dawn, barefoot in my grass. I look up at the stars and I marvel. I marvel as a verb, like I marvel. And then I have a jacaranda tree that I go hug for 30 seconds. A what? Jacaranda tree. I am a tree hugger. <laughs> Barefoot, in the grass, in the dark, every morning, I am hugging that tree for a 30 count every day, connecting with the tree, connecting with nature. Now, sidebar, the human body we know is an electrical machine, right? We know that we use an AED to restart our hearts. We know that our body is electrical. All of our cells have voltage because we're electrical. There is an optimum voltage for your cells to remain at. This is something that Western medicine completely misses. When the cell battery dips, like we don't keep our cells optimally, that's when there's a frequency where the cell voltage drops to where they turn cancerous. Ah, This is well documented in the literature, but it's not talked about because our body, we don't think about our bodies and, and the electricity and the implications of having not enough juice running through the system. And so when the earth produces what are called pulsed electromagnetic frequency, that is what feeds the cells in the body. So I go out in the morning and I go barefoot because I'm grounding. I'm off the concrete and I'm actually connected to the source of that voltage, that energy, which is the planet Earth. Human beings walked on the planet Earth for all of its life cycle until the last couple hundred years. We don't walk on Earth anymore. We walk on concrete. Yeah. We're disconnected from the source of energy which is the earth itself as an energy emitting force. You hear people say you got to go outside to get your vitamin D under the sun. You also have to go outside and get off the concrete and connect to get your PEMFs. 
So I do that every morning, and I connect with Mother Earth every morning, and I connect with the stars every morning, and my spiritual practice begins before the sun even comes up. And then I have this, and then I have this, and then I have this. For me, pickleball is a spiritual practice, and I'll describe why. One, my decision was it, or my, my definition is it's a conscious activity that connects me to something outside of myself. So one, pickleball connects me to the present moment because it's a little yellow ball moving through time and space very fast. And so I absolutely have to have every cell in my body in the present moment and anticipation of the next moment in very short time intervals. I have to be very, very present to play that sport at a high level. So I am in the moment. I've connected to the present moment like powerfully, not just casually, like I'm all, like I'm in the zone, like an athlete, they're in the zone, right? You look at me, I look like a tight, I am like, I have like predator eyes, like I am in the zone when I play sport. It's beautiful. I love it because there's no past, there's no future. There's just that moment where I have control over my body. And then I can execute and express my desire in the world to do this, manipulate this ball in a certain way. And then my success of being able to express myself in the present moment in this body of mine. Now my consciousness is connected with the body that it's in. So I'm connected to my body. This is a huge thing in our culture. We're totally talking heads disconnected to our bodies. So I'm connected to my body. I'm connected to the present moment. I mean, I'll go on. I'm, I'm connected to my paddle. Now, the way I have a relationship with my paddle is the same way I have a relationship with my guitars, which is they are an extension of my creative will. Okay. I think and then express that thought in time and space through my hands or my voice, right, if I'm singing, but my hands, which now are manipulating a guitar at the speed of my thought or they're manipulating the paddle at the speed of my thought. So now this paddle is an extension of me. That's the relationship I have with my paddle. I love my paddle. Like I have a very tender relationship with my paddle. It's fascinating because what it's doing is it's allowing me to express ultimately my thought in the moment. Because how I hit that ball with that paddle in the right or wrong way determines whether or not I've expressed my will in the moment and expressed myself. So I'm connected to my paddle. I'm connected to my partner because it's a team sport. We play doubles and we're in, we're literally in sync. You know, we move up together, we move back together. There's positions for us depending on the point. I'm in, I'm in connection with my opponents because I can't play without them. So before we start, I introduce myself and we all know each other's first name only. None of us even know each other's last name. And we all play in this league where we all show up on these pickleball courts six days a week from 6 a.m. to noon and we just play with each other. It's like a giant playground. Six hours a day? Well, not every, it's open six hours a day. Oh. But not everybody plays that long. And we just connect with each other through the sport. So now I'm connected to all these people. I'm connected to the present moment. I'm connected to my body. I'm connected to my paddle. I'm connected all over the place while I'm playing pickleball. And so I know that that's taking place. So the joy that I have when I play pickleball is unique to me because I'm having a spiritual experience playing pickleball. Some people are just out there for an athletic experience. Some people are out there for a social experience. I'm out there for all, I'm getting all four. It is, it is ticking. It's not just effective, it's efficient. It is filling all four of my tires. 
So I like activities that tick off multiple boxes, the physical, the emotional, the social, the spiritual. So if you start to think about the things that connect you, whatever they are, you start to be able to build a like practice, a daily spiritual practice for yourself. When I call my sponsor on the way home from the pickleball courts, he asks me, how was pickleball this morning? And I'll be like, oh, blah, 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 blah. And I'll check in about my spiritual experience. Yeah, when you first said connecting to something, I didn't, I didn't think about like being in a church pew or any of that. I actually, my brain went to a river that I meditated at. Like that was mm. the, my first go-to. And that was the, the sober trip. I think that was a big piece of what we learned, even though I didn't know I was learning it until right in this moment. Mm. But hugging the elephants and sleeping in the Cambodian villages' houses and all those things, those moments that being present, being present has been a big opportunity for me to pay attention to this year. And I'm really totally. trying to dial in, like I'm getting exposure to people like you that are framing it in a way where I know it's important. I still haven't finished reading all the Eckerd Tolle stuff. <laughs> you know, like I still got, I still got my work to do, but it's really intriguing to me. And just being mindful of it, I know I can take some action steps to change my behaviors. Like every day, it's just going to get a little better. Yep. Am I turning on music while I'm doing dishes or showering is a mindful decision. Do I want to practice trying to be present or do I want to enjoy myself in this way? Like it's all these little things that I think will eventually add up to where I get it a little more. <laughs> totally. Totally. And I think it's a, it is definitely a uh, iterative process where you're just stacking micro tiny behaviors onto a day. My uh, meditation teacher gave a great example. She said, imagine you have, and I guess it was the Maharishi who, Mahesh Yogi, who had given, given this example originally to her and she said, you've got a, a napkin that has a pile, like a four inch high pile, like a pile of powder four inches high, like a giant pile of powder, you know, just, and that powder is gold in powder form. It's not a gold bar. It's not gold coins. It's gold powder. It's been reduced down to powder and now it's just this pile. And your job is to get it over to this other napkin. She goes, meditation is moving the pile from one napkin to the other, one pinch at a time. Mm. You don't move the gold one bar at a time. You move it one pinch at a time. For most people in my experience, that's their recovery journey. It's not like Saul turning into Paul on the road to Damascus, where it's like this transformative single moment in time that permanently changes with no, no, it's not like that at all. It's like one good decision followed by three bad decisions, followed by one good decision followed by two bad decisions or, or, you know, it's like one bad, good decision followed by 10 bad decisions, you know, and it gets better over time. And people notice that if they, after a while, you look back and you go, holy shit, look how far I've come. And you didn't yeah. even notice. And suddenly you're talking to people who are like fresh, you know, into recovery. And you're like, oh, I'm not there somewhere else. I've come somewhere. I've gone somewhere. I've I've moved and I didn't even really notice. That's why it's so great to be able to serve others who are in a recovery journey because it's a constant opportunity to reflect on your own 
progress because you'll either be talking to somebody who, for lack of a better term, has been playing the game longer and has some insights for you, or someone who's been playing the game shorter and you have some insights for them. And either way, it's a win-win experience because you're just companioning along the path of what it really means to be sober. And my sponsor, his definition of sober is mind-blowing. He said, sober is a process. Sobriety, it's a process, process of discovering with another human being what is good and bad for me. It's a process of discovery, working with another human being in connection to determine for me really what's good and bad for me. Because if we go back to the alcohol analogy, alcohol is not bad for a lot of people. Alcohol is really bad for some. It's lethal. Who's to say? I'll tell you who's to say. The person and their sponsor. The person and their mentor. They're the ones who say. Together, in connection, in relationship. I make a determination based on the feedback of my sponsor, what's good and bad for me. Can I look at porn? Can I not look at porn? Can I drink when I'm on the road? Can I not drink when I'm on the road? Can I stay up and screen like and doom scroll on my, on my devices? Or can I not do that? Can I play video games or can I not play video games? Can I eat a certain type of food? and then not be thinking about that food for the rest of the week, right? Or can I just not eat that kind of food, right? They're just these individual things that for one person, it's kryptonite, another person, it's not. Who's to say? I'm not left, it's not good for me to say on my own because we know where that got me. And I think that's part of the genius of the 12-step model as an imperfect, incomplete model. What's brilliant about it is that it's unapologetic, that a spiritual practice is a game changer and it lets you determine what that is. Yeah. Got that right. Absolutely got right the idea of fellowship and companioning. That it's a we thing. Recovery is a we thing. Addiction's a me thing. It's when I'm trapped in that individual ego and I'm disconnected. Addiction's very much an I and a me thing. Recovery is recovering the we, the connection. Recovery is reconnection. Reconnection is that's the process. And so fellowship facilitates connection. And so the 12 steps between groups and fellowship after your meetings and home meetings and sponsor, that social connection, like they nailed it with that. Because in that moment, you realize you're not alone. You, you know, and, oh man, Tommy Rosen said this really well, and I can't remember the quote, but, and it might've been a quote of someone else's, but it's kind of like, you can't do it on your own but you weren't meant to. Like, it's it's cool. Don't worry. Don't try. It doesn't work. The whole design was us to do it together anyway. And so I think the, you know, the 12 steps have been a game changer for so many people because it it fulfills those fundamental needs that a human being, spiritual being, is suffering from that disconnection, that loss. And then the behavior, whatever the behavior was, drove that disconnection deeper. I know for me, there was so much shame in the behavior that drove my disconnection. So I felt disconnected. I felt discomfort, dis-ease, right? And so my body was stressed by that. And so I would seek to self-soothe and then the behavior I would engage in would make me feel more shame. And so I would further disconnect because I didn't want people to know about my behavior. 
And then that would further drive the disease and the disconnection and the discomfort, which would further drive the craving for more, right? And so I would disconnect from my loved ones to just beat them to the punch. Because as soon as they find out, they're going to disconnect with me, of course. That's the the way my brain went. And the fellowship taught me that I'm not alone, that there's you know millions of people just like me. And there's a path. And that no path is perfect, and no path is complete, but here's a path. And it's not the path, it's a path. And it's worked for many, so give it a whirl. I, I think that, so I'm going to always have an affinity to 12-step because it was my, my root. And I used to hate it. I used to resent it because I was in Alatina as a kid and I didn't want to grow up to have to need a 12-step. So I resented having to be in it when it wasn't my problem. It took me a long time to get past that. And then I got, like I said, kind of my recovery roots. And then as, as I'm learning more, especially through the podcast and talking to different people and getting insight is I think that there's a shift, like the 12 step philosophies, I think are timeless, but I think some of the cultural stuff that worked a hundred years ago for men <laughs> and, and GA too, I think we're at 70 years, even though I still think GA is like 50 years behind AA. That's funny. But it's not the same for the 20 year old gamer, going gambler, or even the executive who's playing the stock market or the online betting, like it's not attractive to some of the people that are getting involved sooner now. Like, I, yeah. I don't know that millennials connect or whatever. So I try to let people know how important it is. I still do a step show every month, but I, I just support people taking the journey, whatever yes. the journey is, just keep yes. learning. That's why I love conversations like this to you said so many things that align with my values, but you said them in such a different way. Isn't that fun when that happens? It, it is. Because we were just talking, one of the readings this week was about the cycles. And I talk all the time, like, you perpetuate the bad because you want to stay in the bad, but the bad keeps you in the bad versus coming out of it and, and getting in that positive spin. So many things you said were, were priceless. And we totally didn't even do our agenda. No, of course not. That's um, the way it works. It's yeah. not what needed to be said, apparently. One thing I'll, I'll, I just want to hop on the back of that is that when I read from the big book, it sounds like a bunch of old white men from the early part of the 20th century, and I don't really want to have anything to do with that at a certain level. So the language is a little challenging for me. And I'm really grateful for Russell Brand for writing his book, Recovery from Addiction, because on the back, he translates the 12 steps. And, you know, when you, when I read the 12 steps, again, I am like, <laughs> within seconds, you know, and I just, I'm like, what does this even mean? You know, and I, I just get like, yeah, this is obviously, you know, from some old white dude. And then I suddenly see Russell's 12 steps and I'm just like, Oh, that's what they mean. And like right away, I'm like, oh, well, that makes sense to me now because he, again, has translated, you know, the 12 steps into what I would call modern English. If you haven't heard them, I, I will do you all the favor. I'll read you a few of them right now because of how funny it is. So the first step is, are you a bit fucked? 
<laughs> You're going to do it in the accent, too. Huh? Right, you have to, right? You have to. And the second step is, could you not be fucked? And then number three, are you on your own going to unfuck yourself? And it's like, oh, shit. When you put it that way, bro, you just hammered me. Like, no, no, I need some help because my best thinking got me here, as they say. So I could use some help. And then like read step four and you're just like, wow, maybe it's searching and fearless moral inventory. What? Step four, write down all the things that are fucking you up or have ever fucked you up and don't lie or leave anything out. Thank you. You know, so I think that, you know, A, as Tommy Rosen would say, I wouldn't want to wake up in a world without the 12 steps. But at the same time, uh, I think they could use a little bit of a dusting off in, in the language. I think that will help people connect with the, just because language is dynamic and it's always evolving and changing. And, you know, if you want to create connection, you, you know, language can be a toll booth. So you want to be careful, you know, and I think a lot of people who have misgivings with the 12 step struggle with a lot of the 12 step language. And so I think that, you know, that's why I love Russell's work because his book is just a deep dive into translating the 12 steps into modern English for the average Joe or Jane, or Jane's not even a modern word, you know, Jaden, <laughs> you know, Jaden and, and Jocelyn. There you go. Those are our, our two names. Well, and you, you bring up another point too, that the 12 steps, well, at least this is the way I think about it, but Russell does a better job of connecting it to the audience. It doesn't have to be just alcohol or gambling or whatever. Like people, I feel sometimes like I'm special because I have this recovery journey to teach me all these things that I don't think I would know otherwise. Mm. And I think that the approach, like the Russell brand, and there's a lady who wrote a book and I can't find it. It's been bugging me and I, I look it up every once in a while. But basically, I want to say loosely normal people, but people who may not even know that they're struggling, if they apply the premises and the principles oh, of the 12 steps, totally. Seems like it could be a game changer. <laughs> That's, ladies and gentlemen, I think we just came full circle. <laughs> yeah. So I'm glad you brought him up. I, I haven't read that book in a while. I'm going to have to do it again because I really enjoyed it. I, it's refreshing. Yes. Yes. It yeah. was, especially I think when you're early in recovery, I think that it yep. helps yep. break down some walls and be like, okay. Yep. So thank yep. you for bringing that up. Yeah, absolutely. So I know I've kept you a very long time and I could probably keep you all weekend because I'm enjoying this, but this is, I think you're on record now as the longest interview ever, but I could keep talking to you forever. Yeah. I, unfortunately, I, I own that record on a couple of podcasts. So uh, that's why I'm not on Twitter because I literally can't say anything in <laughs> 280 characters. I can't, can't even say my name. So I tend to be a little long-winded, but I, I learned early on in my life that I can't control my mouth. If my eyes are open, so is my mouth. So I just practice quality control. And I hope that it's either funny, informative, or inspiring. Those are like my, you know, my three criteria for when my mouth opens up. Is it going to be funny? Is it going to be informative? Or is it going to be inspiring? And if not, I should probably close my mouth. So, so that's my, that's my practice. I would love, I'm not sure when people are listening to this in their ears, but I'd love to shamelessly plug some resources for your Absolutely. audience. So music being such an easy tool to reach for when you get stressed, 
there's a, a tool that I created and have been using in the clinic and in the hospital for like 12 years now. And I recorded it and I've made it available for free as a gift uh, to anybody who um, wants to use it in their life. So if you go to sonicrecovery.com, you can uh, download that for free. That's my gift to anybody listening. Please use it. It's a really, really well-designed tool to help allow you to escape the stress of the present moment. Go back in time to a time where you felt safe and secure and connected. Experience that like it's real, and then bring that state back into the present so you can tackle whatever the stress is at your best. So go there and get that. I also have a podcast and it's called Reduce Your Stress with Tim Ringgold, pretty straightforward. And I record and release relaxation music, two tracks a month on there. There's one of the, so it's weekly and either releasing relaxing music that I've written with my loop pedal and my guitar, or it's an interview with another artist who does relaxing music. And we kind of dive deep into the, the womb of creativity. So it's really fun to listen to two wacky artists talk about their creative process. And then I have stress experts speaking on how to lower your stress in various different ways. And so there's always two tracks of music, an expert and an artist every month on the pod. So go, you know, check that out. That's there for you for free. And then depending on where you are in the the date cycle, we host a stress elimination summit twice a year. So once in January for people in recovery, January 25th through 29th of 2021. And then one more general for just busy working professionals who are stressed over the, and that'll be in the summertime. And you can go to stresseliminationsummit.com to learn more about that. The one that's coming up in January, because we're taping right now in December, I'm really excited about. We've got 28 amazing, amazing speakers looking at how to heal trauma, create a future of like compelling future that just calls you into being. And then what are your habits and your daily, what's your practice look like? So really it's complete your past, create your future and conduct your present. And so Stress Elimination Summit is the place to go to check that out. That is also a free resource for you. Wow. Wow. Thank you. That's very generous, Tim. And you are going to be out Christmas Day or New Year's Day. One or oh, the there other. you go. Okay. So we'll, we'll make sure that we blow that up. Yeah. There's, there's no reason people shouldn't take advantage of that 100%. No, I'm really, really excited. I've spent a lot of years on the road speaking at conferences for mental health and addiction specifically, and many of the speakers are the speakers who I saw myself and have been handpicked. Like, you, what you have to say about food is so important, you have to speak on my stage. What you have to say about the breath is so important, you have to speak on What you have to say about cold showers is so, what you have to say about intermittent fasting, Mr. Dave Asprey, is so important, you need to be speaking on my event. Okay. So, you know, we've got all kinds of phenomenal experts, uh, including Dave, speaking at this event. So I'm really excited for, for people to be able to start the year powerfully and have just tons of tools so that they can become more resilient and that will protect them ultimately from relapse. Oh, it's beautiful. You do amazing work. And I'm I'm just elated. This was selfishly, this was what I needed to do today. <laughs> what I needed to hear. I've been really in a in a funk and and you were definitely exactly what I needed. So I right appreciate on. it. Happy to be of service. Thank you so much, Tim. You bet. Was that not incredible? Oh my gosh. Yeah, this interview. I'm not supposed to pick favorites, but I really, really enjoyed this one. And I hope that you did as well. And I hope you learned some stuff. And 
yeah, that concludes our Christmas Day show. Be safe out there and have a great weekend, everyone. 